Upper acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of APRA and the National Boards. I'm Tash Miles, and today we're continuing this telehealth conversation. As we all know, the world changed in response to the global COVID-19 pandemic, and we all needed to adapt the way we lived our lives. In healthcare, this often meant switching to a telehealth model, where practitioners delivered care over the phone or video conference instead of face-to-face. Now, as we can safely return to some face-to-face delivery, albeit in a still-changing world, we reflect on what has been learnt from telehealth delivery during the pandemic and how that will translate into healthcare delivery in the future. I'm joined by three guests to discuss what's possible and how patients, practitioners and their families want their future healthcare interactions to look. Let's meet physiotherapist Joel Stevens. I'm a physiotherapist at Albany Health Campus, which is big rural hospital four hours south of Perth. Health consumer Kate Ellis. I'm an artist and a mum and I also have cystic fibrosis and I live in Melbourne. And GP Dr Maureen Ryan. I'm a GP in Signet, which is about 50 minutes south of Hobart in Tasmania. Welcome. So let's cast our minds back to March 2020. Maureen, what were you concerned about in terms of how you might deliver healthcare during the pandemic? Yeah, well, it was a, certainly a time on the brink of a lot of change. And I think just all of the uncertainties and unknowns of having to do something entirely different, really, just to not have face-to-face consultations with patients, but to purely be running that over in our case it was just over the telephone um my probably my biggest concerns were just you know how do you make sure that you don't miss out on important things um and also to what extent patients would take up that change and and how they would adjust because it's a it's a big shift for both practitioners and patients to um make a lot of adjustments to the way of communicating and and getting important messages across. Reflecting back, were those fears realised? I was really surprised at the way that patients embraced telehealth. They were very grateful for the opportunity to be able to still have consultations in that way and also to reduce their risk by having a phone consult. And my concerns for not always picking up the important things, I guess, (laughs) didn't come to fruition as far as I'm aware. Um, But, yeah, that probably shifted more into just an appreciation of having face-to-face consultations and all of the non-verbal communication that happens and all the the cues that you pick up um, when you're in the presence of a person which are invaluable. And I'm sure, Joel, they're invaluable to you as well. Do you have any... Uh, other reflections on how you felt about how you were going to do your job in a pandemic? With a physiotherapy role in our in our assessing, one of our big things comes through touch in our hands. So having that capacity to feel what's going on with a patient um, was really sort of a big unknown. Um, how much could we gather information through just observation and, and discussion versus touch? And um, 
I guess with caseloads being quite variable in a hospital setting from orthopaedic patients, which are routine and, and driven by the surgeon to having complex um, cases with pain, um, yeah, it was, it was quite a daunting experience not knowing how that would look. Um, I think in, in terms of being able to also have rapport with patients, I was also wondering how that would work because that's quite important as well, trying to get trust, um, which um, is hard to convey over a screen. But I think that was actually one of the most surprising things in, in doing it over screen is that it was actually, what because people were in such an isolated space, their rapport actually developed a lot easier because they, it was like they were having um, the only interactions um, were with health professionals and so they really appreciated it. So that was a real surprise, I think. It actually made that space a lot easier in one sense. Um, but um, yeah, definitely that was a shock. And as well with Albany, it's an older cohort. There's a lot of people over the age of 65 and 85. So I didn't think that they would be interested at all in wanting to take up a new skill, but they were all excited to try it, I think, um, more so than, than what I thought. It's interesting how many times we've had our, our perceptions challenged over these past months of the pandemic. Kate, as someone who's living with cystic fibrosis, I was wondering if you could talk to us about what your um, interactions with health practitioners was um, usually before the pandemic and then how that changed and how, how that worked for you. Yeah, so normally I would um, be having um, an appointment at the hospital every three months or so if all is going well with my health. Um, uh, and I suppose um, in March 2020, I was probably feeling a fair bit of anxiety, um, really hoping that we would be able to do telehealth because um, I think telehealth is something that um, <clears throat> has been available on and off um, to people with CF, but, you know, not in a reliable way. And because there are issues with cross-infection and a number of other issues, it's always, um, I think there's always a certain percentage, probably quite a few of us, who would really rather have access to telehealth. And so given that we often weren't able to get access, I was pretty concerned in the context of a pandemic about what would happen um, because... I'd been watching the figures um, quite closely from when the news first was emerging from China. And I think just because you have your radar as a person with CF, you have your radar up. Um, so, yeah, I was probably around March beginning to go from concern to just incredible gratitude, <laughs> realising that there were some very wise people who were doing work behind the scenes and that um, telehealth was just going to, there was going to be a sweeping change. And, um, yeah, so I was probably just massively relieved, actually. And was it a positive experience generally? It was really fabulous to, to be able to, to do that. And 
aside from doing lung function, which is always at appointments, which is always quite um, concerning for most people with CF because of the cross-infection issues, really the appointments are not very hands-on. I mean, I know that it can be different for people who are facing different issues or complexities or, or whatever, but for me, um, yeah, the communication was great and it was just so fabulous not to be driving for over an hour to get to an appointment, paying for car parking, having organised childcare, having, you know, asked my husband to take time off to support me. Um, all those elements, you know, it was just brilliant to be able to, to just have such easy access to my health professionals. Yeah. That's, that's wonderful to hear. Maureen, I wonder if you have any stories or anecdotes that you could tell us about positive experiences that you've had um, doing telehealth over the past few months? Yeah, lots. Um, certainly in terms of efficiencies um, and, and like Kate was just saying, that travel issue, it's been really great to be able to say to patients who have had appointments, say in Launceston, if we don't have even the specialist um, availability or capabilities for certain things in Hobart, um, you know, sometimes they need to go to Launceston for it. And even just to say, oh, actually, um, you probably don't even need that to be a face-to-face. -face. Why don't we see if it can be telehealth? And then furthermore to say, oh, well, it's really hard to get in to see a neurologist in Hobart at the moment, but we're not limited by Tasmania now. We can think of anyone nationally because people are doing telehealth. And then internationally, I had a, a patient just recently who's really curious about some progressive um, new ideas in dementia and they mentioned someone in America and I said, well, they're probably doing telehealth consultations. I don't see why we can't see if that's an option or if even just, you know, it's worth looking into. So a lot of those barriers have come down, which is fantastic. Um, we've had at our practice a lot of patients uh, engaging just so, so nicely with um, technology in ways I hadn't imagined. Even I had one patient... Uh, send email through a photograph of a, a lesion on their partner and that you know at first glance I said no we're gonna have to get you seen by a surgeon for that because it was it looks like a nasty cancer um, and then a, you know strange things like just having a, a hunch when speaking to someone on the phone with something as potentially innocuous as shoulder pain which didn't quite sound right and we ended up getting them in and they were actually having a heart attack so um, yeah, that was the kind of fear that I had going into it, but there have been quite a lot of surprises of just, I'm not sure if it's intuition or, or um, yeah, just thinking, um, you know, that it still is an option to obviously get patients in and examine them um, and, and do things a sort of old-fashioned way, but it has been great in many ways to be catapulted into this telehealth all of a sudden which you know last year we would have said oh it might be in the next five years or so that it could be something more mainstream but all of a sudden just when there was a need it's happened and I think on the whole people have really embraced it which has been great. Uh, listening to what Maureen was saying about um, 
you know, being able to have access to other um, health professionals and specialists and so on. And I think that that's, I know that that's relevant for cystic fibrosis, given that it's a, you know, a multi-organ um, sort of complex disease. And um, for some people, you know, they have, um, you know, issues that arise that can be, you know, where, you know, it, it's very much at the pointy end of a number of specialties. And um, so, yeah, um, there's somebody I know who was able to access, you know, a specialist in Sydney via telehealth and someone else who was able to get a second opinion in Adelaide and so on. And just it's just meant that, you know, um, easy access to to experts that um, might not have, you know, that which might not have happened otherwise. The world's getting smaller. Joel, I wonder if you could talk about that kind of access to people who you're geographically displaced from, but in the sense of like practitioner communities. Have you been able to talk to colleagues online? Just before even COVID hit, I'd actually been working rurally in another place up in Geraldton. And um, that was just really interesting because I'd set up um, a stroke pathway uh, to to be able to communicate with a more central Perth, a bigger hospital that had specialist stroke services, whereas we were a generalist rehab. And uh, that was just before when COVID hit and we'd got to establish that telehealth process. And it was really cool seeing how that all played out, being able to use screens to watch patients. And then you translate that forward into um, COVID to 2020, um, just seeing how quickly that process of have, using other staff resource um, in, in, in Perth um, which have specialty areas and us as regional centres. People in Perth really wanted to help us out and that, and that was really able to be achieved very quickly with um, telehealth consults and, and staff um, being able to be contacted directly and, and having both the face-to-face with the, the video conference calls as well as um, just even being able to pick up a phone um, after those in, uh, interactions over telehealth and, and seeing who who actually is in those spaces of specialty from a regional point of view. And that's really helpful um, because we sort of feel sometimes that you can become a bit disconnected from a, a big hospital from uh, and, and you don't know whether or not you can talk to people who are higher up in those specialty areas. And I really broke down that barrier um, post COVID that, you know, everyone's in it. We're all in it together as a health, as a healthcare t- um, team. Um, and, and yeah, a lot of senior staff um, from a physio point of view were willing to take phone calls from like junior staff and, and talk us through patients that were um, complex, definitely in different arenas. So that was really, yeah, definitely invaluable. And how much of that do you think will carry forward as telehealth is not such a requirement from a like infection control public safety perspective, but it sounds like it could really give give your patients and more patients a better access to healthcare. It will, it will definitely encourage that people who are considering moving rural to be able to feel like they can be supported and confident that they're going to get the training in a regional area, um, where at times that can be difficult to resource. So, for example, I actually took on a spirometry course, which spirometry is just an assessment of lung function. For example, um, cystic fibrosis with Kate, she has to get done regularly. So um, it's a really important assessment to work out how much someone can breathe in and out, basically.
and we were able to do all the training online um, with video packaging as well and, and interact with senior uh, specialist staff from a spirometry point of view um, and having conversations and, it, and yeah, upskill very easily and, and quickly. It was a very well run course and just stuff like that um, makes us feel confident that we're doing the right thing, we're on the right track and we, we don't have to go to Perth in the same way that patients feel like they don't have to make all those appointments to come and get their assessment for the same way for staff. We don't have to make all these plans just to get like one course, you know, for, for one day, we can actually get comprehensive support and, and still remain where we live. Um, and yeah, so definitely gives confidence all around to give our patients the right care. Kate? I think just that the ease of that access um, to each other, I think, is a real is a safety is an el- brings an element of safety to, to you know to the situation my mind goes quite quickly to remote indigenous communities especially i really hope and trust that there are opportunities presenting themselves that hadn't haven't been there before just to improve access um, to you know indigenous communities who might get a specialist visit once a year or every few months for certain things. Um, so there's much less of an excuse now um, for, for that kind of thing. So, yeah, hopefully, you know, with, with everyone's awareness of how quickly it can happen and fairly smoothly and seamlessly, um, and, yeah, I'm just really hoping that it's being rolled out throughout the country. You're just listening to one of our many Taking Care episodes. Please do have an explore of the archives. For example, our episode on safe, competent and ethical health practitioners. The public actually just expects those things of every health practitioner. We come in with a lot of trust and we assume that there will be safe, competent and respectful care from everybody that we meet. It really does come down to uh, a consideration of our personal circumstances, to really good communication that takes account of our needs. Our expectations of clinical care almost go unmentioned in the sense that we simply expect that every practitioner will be equally competent. So please do subscribe and download some previous episodes and let's get back to this conversation. Maureen, I wonder if you could reflect on if you've learnt anything about how uh, your patients are behaving and responding to the pandemic and maybe also about your own practice, if there's anything that you've learnt about yourself. Yes, I've learnt lots (laughs) Um, during this big time of change. There has been, I think, globally for many reasons, a lot of anxiety. And I've noticed that in patients and patients have become aware of that too. And that can manifest in a multitude of ways, whether it be with physical complaints or psychological complaints or some combination of the two. Um, And people have become quite creative, I think, in understanding themselves. Maybe it's because they're spending more time kind of more uh, a less busy time less active and kind of must to must do list listing um but I think people have seemingly learned that there are ways that they can help themselves in you know new and creative ways um I've I had quite a few patients 
when I was speaking with them mentioned that they were doing a lot of online stuff, whether it be courses or, you know, their own their own study or even socialising. And the hit that their physical activity was taking as a result of just sitting all day looking at the screen. And um, it was fairly early in the piece that I decided myself, oh, I can't sit still all this time. It, generally, I get up and in between patients and go and get the next one and then we sit down and even getting up to examine them on the on the bed you know there's a bit of movement that happens throughout my day um, but I made a commitment to do a lot of standing at my computer and also not to be staring at the screen because it's quite a different type of exhaustion that you have after just looking at a screen all day and not looking at a person there uh, and I try not to look at computer while I'm consulting as much as I can so I'm fortunate to have a, a really beautiful view out from where my practice is so I'd just be standing and you know talking on the phone looking out the window and and trying to yeah concentrate on imagining the person's situation but not just looking at a screen and a set of notes I got in the habit of doing you know some push-ups in between every phone consultation and just trying to do something to get the variety and and the activity alive <laughs> yeah if I think about what I've learned from video conferencing with my colleagues it's been that everyone who's in Tasmania has, just has a spectacular view <laughs> we're very fortunate <laughs> I definitely agree with um, you, Maureen, in terms of patients being set, like changing their awareness um, of themselves. I definitely had an, uh, a patient, it makes me think of a patient I had who had chronic pain, which um, I was definitely apprehensive in wanting to do over a video consult, um, and they had fibromyalgia. It's a chronic pain syndrome um, that occurs across multiple um, areas of the body. Um, so it's uh, a general term for pain syndrome with fatigue, um, which brings all its complexities. And what I did find that across the interactions with video call, um, other than them being actually really excited to do the video call, because it meant that they didn't have to go outside the house um, and around the COVID space as well, but um, that, that they got to have that um, that one-on-one -on -one time with the therapist. but. They actually, it felt like it took away um, that sort of natural power dynamic when, when a patient comes in that when you're critiquing the way that they move and, and or are critiquing the way like their, their lifestyle factors um, just from a clinical point of view that um, and I can really be like that you're visualizing visualizing everything from a physio point of view that that patient then, could take responsibility and ownership of the exercises rather than it being me saying that this is exactly how it has to be done. And they actually found that they were creating their own exercises that worked for them. And so it definitely took away that natural instinct as a therapist to be like, oh no, do it this way or do it this way. And actually the patient was more empowered to actually, yeah, do their own exercises essentially. And I was actually surprised that they actually did more and more of it than say, if I just said, do these exercises, which is a big part of what we do as physios and strength prescription. So that, that power dynamic definitely changed in, I felt, a good way. Um, there was more ownership on their part to, to develop their own awareness of their body and their movement and their um, way of dealing with things. 
it was interesting, Joel, hearing what you were saying there about patients um, perhaps being able to own or take on your advice perhaps in a more independent way. Context is very powerful and I think from a patient perspective, I think when you're out of your, very much out of your comfort zone um, and in, in an environment that's not so familiar to you, it's a harder learning environment to have someone in their own home environment. Um, that, that, that individual is going to be more relaxed and more receptive um, to, to suggestion and advice and to learning. Yeah, it's a really good point. It's almost like a home ground advantage, isn't it? I think the dynamic is really interesting because in a sense, uh, the practitioner is being invited into the patient's home. It's a, li- it's a little like that. I guess the, the patient's not necessarily, if the practitioner is still in the hospital environment, the, practitioner, the patient isn't um, uh, learning more about the practitioner necessarily, but the practitioner is certainly learning more about the patient <laughs> in terms of, you know, the way that you learn more about someone when you go over to their place for a cup of tea. <laughs> you, you see the environment and you learn different things. That's really beautiful, Kate, because it's kind of like you're working together as a team, but both working to make the patient as well and safe as they can be. Do you have a sense of what you think needs to be true moving forward? Like, what would you prioritise in this kind of next phase of healthcare? I think that we need to be very careful not to lose or forget the lessons that we've learned over this time about delivering healthcare on a number of different levels. But I think that, you know, telehealth has been very valuable and I think that it might have taken another five years to sort of inch towards. But it's, it's taken this situation to leap us as human beings. We haven't quite caught up with what our capacities are and what is possible with the technology that we have. And... Uh, this situation has lifted the blinds and, you know, we can see and we've lived it now. I think that we need to be really mindful about not um, just slipping back into how things have been done and we should, you know, slip back into and, and lose the, the lessons that we've learned. The, the, the systems that we have in place don't necessarily work for um, for patients and if there's something that we can learn to cha- that changes the system that makes it easier and works better for patients but also for practitioners let's not forget those lessons mm-hmm. I feel that the lesson big lesson I learned or two big lessons I learned from uh, going through this sort of experience and transition into the telehealth and video conference space is that one stereotypes about you know, how we access internet and, and stereotypes around who, who accesses uh, the, these communication strategies, stereotypes can always be challenged um, in a good way, in a positive way, um, and that, that it's actually important to embrace, um, embrace those who want to use those communication devices no matter what age. So um, I think that was a good learning curve for me as being someone who's younger 
and is just assumed to know how to use technology, but definitely um, working alongside those who are in an older space who want to embrace it. And I think the second lesson learnt from using um, telehealth is is how important what mental space and health space patients are in being received receiving information, um, and really honing in our skills on on how we communicate without using our our natural body language and stuff that we take for granted. Um, really actually focusing on the words that we use and how powerful they are to, to um, encourage positive change and positive behaviours um, in, in patients and listening to patients and hearing, making them feel heard. So it really brought that focus on the therapeutic relationship and rapport more so, um, even more so than um, previously when you just get patients into your own environment, as Kate put it, um, and makes you feel comfortable. So actually, I have to make myself uncomfortable and, and vulnerable because I could make mistakes, could be clunky, um, I could, you know, drop out and in and not say the right words. And so I have to be sensitive to how I get viewed to the patient and, and how they, they construe that um, and vice versa. So yeah, it makes me more sensitive to communication both ways. I guess it's about making sure that empathy is always at the forefront. Maureen? Kate and Joel just put it also <laughs> in such a beautiful way. I completely agree with what they said and, and just further agree with access being su not such a barrier um, and also the utilisation of technology. We needn't, we needn't have such resistance and perhaps that is just a perceived resistance and it's it's not a, a genuine consensus that we don't need to progress in that direction. We don't need to be too fearful of technology and change because with those things can bring about a whole new set of opportunities. Thank you, Maureen, Kate and Joel for just a wonderful discussion and insightful commentary on the world around us as it changes and how healthcare fits into that and plays an important role. Thank you. Thank you, Tash. Thank you, Tash. Thank you for listening to this episode of Taking Care. We would love for you to spread the word and share this episode and also subscribe to the podcast by searching for Taking Care in your favourite podcast player. See you next time. Mm -hmm.